Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we are here every week to help get communities up and running with broadband, telehealth, and other types of digital technology uh, in everywhere it needs to be. The broadband, telehealth, and digital revolution unfortunately leaving a lot of communities behind and their leadership can either sit there and say, well, woe was us, or the community itself, the community uh, unofficial leaders, if you will, can rise up and say, we're going to make a difference and we're going to make this broadband and digital technology happen come heck or high water. Uh, today's show is going to look at how communities can make a difference in their digital in, um, advancement. Our first guest is Peter Kaplan, who is the managing consultant at the eHealth Systems and Solutions firm. Wow, Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Craig. Great to be here, and welcome to the audience. Ah, thank you. Now, uh, we should probably start with give me a little bit um, some ideas of what your company is doing these days. Well, I started my company. I started doing telehealth in 1996, uh, managing a, a three-state telehealth solution that was federally funded to sort of do a demonstration on how technology can assist. Uh, healthcare providers in reaching their patients in remote communities in Colorado, Kansas, and Nebraska. Mm-hmm. In 2004, I started my company as a means of providing consulting services to hospitals, rural healthcare systems, individual physician practices, and insurance payers as a way of helping them create both a financially and clinically uh, sustainable program. And these services are designed to provide clinicians the resources to manage their patients in a virtual setting. I got you. Okay. Coolness. Um, so, you know, as a strategist, um, as you're, you know, working with different organizations, if I'm going to look at the, you know, a community situation where it could be Detroit, it could be, um, you know, a small rural area, but if you want to have a strategy to where you are using telehealth to um, get the best out of your uh, public health, um, who are the stakeholders, the community stakeholders that should be in that room at the table as we develop this strategy? Well, Craig, I mean, given what pan, uh, COVID has shown us as a result of, a, you know, a widespread uh, uh, disease uh, that affects many people in many settings, for rural as well as urban communities to effectively manage the public health implications, you need all hands on deck. And that can range every, from certainly the individual physician clinics in your community to public health agencies, the public health departments, um, and then working with social organizations, whether they be uh, religious institutions, uh, the community uh, centers for seniors, uh, gyms and health health clubs, 
any number of organizations that have large uh, memberships, whether they be families, seniors, minority communities, these are your touch points and your community partners. And most of them can be very effective in certainly spreading the word about this, uh, the telehealth services that could be available. And in many cases can be uh, facilitate many of these uh, visits either on site in a facility that they may have available or in collaboration with community health providers. But I would mm -hmm. say that in any community, whether it's urban or rural, there are a lot of organizations that should be, the Chamber of Commerce is always a good place to also include because they represent a lot of the employers in a community and they can also be a very uh, strategic partner in getting the word out and providing educational programs to not only the employees in a community, but to all their families and dependents. Mm -hmm. Now, I, the, um, the leadership, you know, the mayor, the city council, those types of folks, often they will be involved with a project like this, but do you have a, just a tip or two of how you might work for or move forward when your leadership, your elected leadership, isn't getting into the whole spirit of everything? Well, I mean, clearly having the, the civic leadership, the governmental leadership, and certainly uh, uh, the Department of Health, whether it's a municipal or a county Department of Health, they should actually be very much involved. They should be uh, part of the response team that is coordinating some of the care and certainly providing some of the infrastructure since most of them now have broadband capacity where they can tap, tap into other uh, vendors and or individual clinicians who want to have a virtual link. So yeah, I mean, it's always, and certainly in a small community, uh, the elected leaders are very much part of it. They talk to their constituents or even, you know, their next door neighbors. So yeah, they, they need to be engaged at least in showing that there's a commitment to supporting these initiatives. And most county and municipal health departments already have uh, virtual programs that are available either as streaming educational programs on various chronic diseases or certainly uh, programs, webinars that uh, citizens can attend to find the latest information on what's going on in the community. Um, and mm -hmm. then, you know, clearly working with the local hospitals or uh, federally qualified health centers, urgent care, any kind of primary care uh, organization should also be uh, involved. Gotcha. Okay. Now, I'm a big fan of the needs assessment in the, the broadband sense, and I've been rec recently been pushing the same concept among folks involving uh, being involved with uh, telehealth. Uh, from your perspective, um, how do you view the, the importance of the needs assessment and how might it look um, as you're putting everything together and you're putting all these different touch points in, um, what, is it, what does the end product of the needs assessment look like? Well, it's a good question, and it's one that's absolutely critical to building a, a scalable and sustainable solution. There are two types of assessments, the external market assessment, who are we trying to uh, treat, and what are we treating them for? And what are the types of services that we can provide within the context of the resources available, i.e. clinicians, whether they be doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, therapists. 
So you have to sort of do an internal assessment to see what your uh, infrastructure capabilities are. Do you have the telecommunication uh, uh, bandwidth? Do you have equipment and so on? You need to also externally evaluate who are the partners that you can be working with and what resources do they bring. And then you want to assess the marketplace. What is the volume of patients that could realistically be treated for particular types of problems or, or conditions, whether they be primary care, chronic care, you know, long-term care? Many different types of patient needs are out there, and each requires a different response as far as the bandwidth uh, requirements, the equipment that would be needed at both ends, uh, today, many homes can have a number of digital uh, um, meters that can measure everything that a doctor would need in real time to make a proper diagnostic assessment. So there's a lot of things, but, you know, assessing telehealth needs is fairly straightforward. You have to look at what are the issues that need to be treated and what clinical resources do you currently have within your community and what kind of uh, uh, resources could you contract with to a separate, a third-party uh, provider. And, many, and there are many, many now national networks of providers for primary care, for mental health care, and then for all types of specialties, primarily stroke um, and cardio, uh, orthopedic, Virtually every specialty, health medical specialty, can utilize telehealth in some capacity, whether it's initial diagnostic and triage or ongoing care post-surgery, uh, pre-surgical prep for various uh, surgeries now. So there's a host of things that are available. Most are very inexpensive to provide. The cost of doing an effective telehealth uh, service does not have to be uh, substantial, and most organizations have the choice between building their own solution or buying or contracting with a third party. And in most cases, the, the assessment has either been done through a county health department or a state health department, or it can be uh, help uh, facilitated through a third party vendor who would help design the program based on the use cases that are most pressing. Mm -hmm. So now, so we've got the, you know, the needs assessment uh, piece done. Let's talk about the, um, the healthcare partners that will be part of whatever telehealth um, opportunity there is. How would you rate um, the, the typical um, medical practice uh, hospital as they were dealing with the pandemic, you know, how they were dealing with telehealth in the beginning of the pandemic. Was it good? Was it bad? Because it was new to everybody. Well, this, this is a discussion that uh, has been going on around the country. Pre-pandemic, the adoption, the uptake of telehealth across the country had been uh, over the last 25 years that I've been doing it in fits and spurts. I mean, we had organizations, major health systems like Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins, uh, Intermountain Health in Utah, many, many large health systems and medical schools that had been progressively implementing telehealth since the late uh, 80s, early 90s. In fact, telehealth in its earliest stages uh, with teleradiology and telemental health go back into the 70s. 
So, but in the last 20 years, it's been a slow uh, progression of adoption, not, not nearly as quickly or as widespread. A lot of the early initial attempts were uh, poorly implemented, and so there were a lot of uh, setbacks, which created some uh, unintended consequences, which reduced uh, the interest by many people. Uh, not the least of which the problems that were, uh, aside from some technology challenges, there was always the reimbursement. And for most health systems, money is where it's at. If you cannot generate a revenue, it's hard to offer a service. So there had been a lot of uh, uh, barriers, obstacles to fully embracing telehealth. Uh, but in the last few years, it's not been the technology. It's been more the human factor. It's getting people to change their workflows. It's getting people to recognize that the ability to provide their patients with uh, timely access to care where they are when they need it uh, is becoming paramount to having a fully uh, positive patient experience. Since the pandemic, uh, that forced a lot of healthcare providers of all scale um, to rapidly implement and deploy these solutions. And in many cases, it was done very poorly. There was a complete lack of training. There were um, many uh, challenges in engaging and orienting patients so that they understood the how, when, and why of using this. So there were some real challenges that uh, unfortunately, sadly, in most cases, the healthcare profession has had ample opportunity over the last 20 years to uh, embrace this in a very methodical way where they could have been prepared to scale it when the pandemic hit. But uh, again, most organizations, other than the more progressive health uh, healthcare provider systems, uh, were very slow to embrace this. And when the pandemic hit, most were unprepared for dealing with this in a meaningful way. And as a result, the government decided to relax some of the restrictions that had been previously put in place for security and privacy reasons, as well as other workflow. But they allowed uh, clinicians to use the Skypes and the FaceTime and the Zoom, which up until the pandemic were not particularly permitted under HIPAA. But um, yeah, as nice. a means of trying to engage the profession and get this service out there as quickly and with, it, with as few obstacles to imp implementation, the government suspended a lot of that. We don't know how much of that will be reinstated at some point in the future, but we're seeing at least some of the more positive um, uh, waivers like the reimbursement, parity reimbursement with an in-person visit is there. Medicare and Medicaid have been aggressively promoting telehealth to their populations, and we're seeing a, a huge adoption curve uh, with uh, consumers who, uh, who, have sp who are spending an increasing amount of time online in the rest of their lives and now are realizing healthcare shouldn't be any different. And the reality is, is that the healthcare profession can be trained sufficiently to create actual actionable value in, in that relationship, that they can provide their patients with uh, tools, resources, and uh, be able to monitor their progress to ensure that there's a value proposition in delivering this care virtually. Mm -hmm. Do folks talk about um, having additional help with the training aspect? Um, you've got the the doctors and the healthcare professionals on the one hand and they need to be trained, but you're also dealing with patients 
who, you know, they may not have been, uh, you know, aware of, of telehealth and so forth, but now everyone's, you know, moving to it. Do we have a need for additional people or some sort of resource to help with the training of the people involved with telehealth now? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that the long-term success of these virtual solutions, and it, it goes way beyond just telehealth. Telehealth, telemedicine is just is a relatively small aspect of an overall virtual care um, ecosystem. So, mm-hmm. but with, in response to your question, most vendors, and this is why I recommend in most cases, unless an organization has a robust IT department that can assign uh, resources to training internally and then doing outreach to the patients so that everyone truly understands how to use this equipment, this technology effectively and uh, sustainably. And that was the big challenge for most physicians who chose to go the Zoom or the FaceTime or Skype as a way of connecting with patients because it was inexpensive, in most cases free, and but it, it lacked a lot of the technical support and clinical support that these doctors' staffs were having to now do for themselves. And uh, in talking with many of the staff, there was a tremendous dissonance, there was disconnect between their, their clinical responsibilities of managing the patients uh, either in an in-person visit or uh, on the phone uh, in between visits and helping them actually use the technology appropriately. And so many of them were very frustrated because they were now given a new task, which they themselves had not been particularly well-trained to do. And the doctors kind of just, you know, walked away from it and said, just, you know, I just want to be able to click on when the patient shows up and, you know, you've got to make sure that that all works. And so many of the doctors uh, and, and, you know, the training is both in using the technology, but in also how to conduct uh, an effective telehealth visit. And sadly, the vast majority of private practice docs had never gotten really the adequate training in website manners. Um, you know, they all figured it was no different than when the patient was sitting across from them. But there's just lots of little gotchas that if you're not aware, you're going to make mistakes and it'll diminish the use of the of this tool. So there mm-hmm. is a, a huge need for training at all levels, both internally with your technical staff, your clinical staff, and with the patients. Some of that's provided by third-party vendors who offer tremendous support in making these services available and successful, or it has to be provided internally within the healthcare system's own technical IT staff. Mm -hmm. So now one of the things that I'm very adamant about, um, especially when we have um, urban areas where you have heavy concentration of people, um, but not necessarily, uh, you know, computer literate and definitely not a lot of uh, health literacy going on. However, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring telehealth deeper into the community and now enable this telehealth phenomena to be experienced by a lot of, um, you know, just your everyday folks. Um, I'd like to talk about some of the 
the locations where or the organizations that may facilitate uh, where where this happens, right? So we've got obviously the healthcare uh, facilities, uh, the clinics, um, the uh, federally qualified health centers, and so forth. But then what? else can we look at like just for example as as libraries as a first starting point but we you and i have talked about a number of these over time where you where do you see us going in terms of different organizations facilitating uh telehealth so that the professional health care givers to do their be able to do their thing well, uh, you know, this is an issue. I mean, we have the national broadband programs that are now trying to provide all of the coverage, last mile coverage in all these communities rural in rural areas. We also have needs within the urban setting to provide connection. Not everybody can afford connectivity in their homes. So there's lots of community touch points. And I know in your work over the years, you've been very focused on providing uh, you know, support to uh, uh, barbershops and hair salons as places where people congregate in a community and that there's a certain trust within those, uh, organ, you know, those businesses where people can interact very comfortably. Um, but, you know, clearly within every community, you have many different organizations from the churches and the uh, houses of worship to um, the libraries to the public schools, which increasingly now, especially in rural communities where school nurses may not always be available in every building, the, the schools can now provide at least, a, again, a triaging uh, solution so that if kids come to school ill, they can be deter you know that can be addressed and if they need to be quarantined or if they have minor accidents rather than rushing them to a, an emergency room where that may not be an appropriate um, option uh, and now we're also starting to see telehealth in the workplace and workers comp related point of injury services so you know any place that there is essentially a broadband or an internet or a Wi-Fi connection you can have a point-to-point -point solution people can communicate in different spaces uh, and it's you know it can be within your community it can be outside the community or it can be across the country um, many of the doctors I work with have uh, peers that work in various organizations and they're very comfortable interacting with them across state lines so we're starting to see some of that go Going on where you know colleagues are calling their best friends rather than the closest doc who they may or may not know but clearly in every community there are organizations that can be part of this solution they can either provide a space in which equipment can be put and people can come to that facility or they can sponsor or subsidize other programs, the training or the equipment that would be needed. And today there's many, many vendors that are selling personal monitoring devices so that patients, consumers can have these devices, blood pressure monitors, glucometers, pulse oximetry, EKGs on their phones. I mean, there is a whole host of devices now that can be deployed in the home or in any facility that will provide a real-time linkage to a, a clinical office, whether that's a public health office, whether that's a rural health uh, uh, qualified uh, rural health facility, or urgent care, 
it can be anywhere. We we are no we are no longer limited by geography to establishing the ability to provide care. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that comes into mind, um, I think people think about uh, telehealth is a situation where a kid comes home or the parent comes home and uh, they. Mm, they want to take advantage of telehealth, right? And the realities are there are a certain things that you can do when it's just, you know, the visual uh, examination by the doctor, right? But um, you also have, you know, blood pressure monitors. You have um, uh, devices that, that are they're, they're electronic um, stethoscope. You got people get you know got products that can look at people's ears and all of that. It seems like if you're going to promote uh, telehealth, you're going to or you should be able to talk about the different um, devices. But then if you do that, you now make this a more expensive. Um, exercise, you know, how do we how do we address that? Especially when we're talking about, you know, there are people who barely have access to um, broadband, and now you're saying, well, here's telehealth; it'll make you healthier and all of that. But then there are these other devices, and you know, who's going to pay for that? Should there be people that pay for that? There are a number of different strategies for addressing that. I mean, there are um, you know, doctors are now in a position in many cases, depending on the nature of the patient's uh, condition, where they can lease the equipment to the patient of, for a very nominal daily rate, depending on how long they need to be, uh, you know, to avoid some of the Medicare penalties for readmissions or uh, to uh, reduce the uh, missed or canceled visit problems that many doctors experience. There are devices that they can make available to their patients should they want to see the, the financial models that would say, if you provide these, uh, these devices and monitor your patients and head, head off any conditions before they become uh, admiss- admissible to the hospital, there's a financial opportunity. But again, the cost of many of these devices now are very insignificant. And even, you know, people of modest means, consumers of modest means can afford some of them uh, to provide that linkage to their healthcare provider. So uh, whether it is provided through some sort of a government subsidy, through a provider subsidy, uh, or outright purchase or lease by a consumer, uh, there are many ways to go, and uh, you know, there. If, if if somebody has access to broadband, that makes it easier. But again, th- these devices can also be made resident in some of the facilities I had mentioned, and they can be used by a technician who is there to assist the patients throughout the day. Uh, that they would come in and use this, but yes, it it will certainly be much more consequential uh, to have devices properly calibrated and and uh, and, and the uh, patients using appropriately, uh, which will aid the clinician in in determining exactly what the condition may be, what type of treatment would be appropriate, where that treatment should be rendered. I mean, all of this is we're moving in that direction. You know, the, the devices are portable. They're very inexpensive, increasingly more so uh, 
And, uh, you know, we'll be at a point in the very near future where anyone can be routinely monitored or at least monitored sufficiently to determine if there's a bad trend going on and we can intervene in an earlier, uh, less uh, intensive intervention. Mm-hmm. Great. No, this has been very, very helpful. Um, so I have one last question, and then we'll be moving on to our other guest, um, Joshua Edmonds. Um, how do we get broadband and telehealth to play nicer together? Because um, before the pandemic, this was an issue. We, we, we had the, the telehealth people on one side, uh, the broadband on the other. Now you have people understanding that there's an issue, but then how, do we, how can we move this along of these, uh, these two entities coming together? Well, they, they, need, they both need each other. In order for, for telehealth, telemedicine to be truly effective, we need to have adequate and um, um, uh, sustainable broadband. I mean, it has, to be a, it has to work. It has to have a very uh, substantial uptime in order for it to be adopted uh, rapidly. But I think that these are two industries that need each other. They provide value to each other. You can't have telehealth without the telepart, and you can't have telehealth without the health part. So, you know, having reliable, affordable broadband has always been an issue. The government has tried to address that through various subsidies. Uh, you would know that more so than I. But ultimately, it's, it's both the health systems and the broadband providers working together, uh, looking at uh, what is the combination of hardwire, Wi-Fi, uh, you know, how do we balance where these, uh, these conveyance uh, services should be located and, and to what degree are we relying on them? But I think in the end, these are two industries that have a mutual interest in helping each other succeed. Um, you know, telemedicine can't survive without a reliable broadband solution to support it. And, uh, and the broadband companies, quite frankly, this is, uh, should be a part of their mission is to support healthcare where and when it's needed in communities that may or may not be able to afford it in the way it's presently constituted. So I think the federal government is certainly looking at ways of making sure that we can provide that last mile coverage and get people uh, connected where they are, and and hopefully they will be supported uh, both technically and clinically. Great. Peter, it's been a uh, wonderful, good opportunity uh, to speak with you, and uh, I want to thank you for your time uh, today, and hopefully we'll be back in touch soon, and uh, we'll be, you know, just doing more great stuff. So, again, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Craig. Okay. Um, Our next guest is Joshua Edmonds, who is the city of Detroit. Uh, director of digital inclusion and the creator of a um, sustainable digital inclusion strategy to build or to bridge the uh, the digital divide. Um, Joshua, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having cool. me. Ah, no, no problem. So you have a lot of challenges. Um, let's start with, you know, just, just briefly, what is it that is your uh, as, you've, um, as you've come on board the city of Detroit? 
I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, my, my phone might went out a little bit, but I believe you had asked what's my uh, biggest challenge uh, at the city of Detroit. And, you know, I, I think that if you would ask me that question two years ago, I uh, would have been a different, a different response. And so I think that I'm going to frame it in a way where, you know, when I first came into this role, January of 2019, uh, at the time, I was the only municipal director of digital inclusion that doesn't in the country. That doesn't necessarily mean that other municipalities weren't focusing on bridging the digital divide, but a lot of them leaned on the broadband side of the house. So they're like, you have uh, a yeah. broadband coordinator, a broadband manager. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, 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 no. A director of digital inclusion would be someone that is focusing on all uh, facets of the digital divide and developing a strategy to counterbalance that or at least address it in perpetuity, so building an operation to do so. But the big challenge in 2019 – uh, there wasn't a pandemic, and uh, obviously someone could probably underscore me and say, no, 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 poverty was a pandemic, the digital divide is a pandemic, and sure, but there wasn't a global COVID-19 pandemic. And so in 2019, there wasn't funding allocated to urban uh, ecosystems specifically earmarked of bridging the digital divide. And so my biggest challenge at the time then was getting funding, getting the attention that was needed to drive awareness around the issue to then, you know, create a, a movement of uh, partners to be able to address the digital divide. Fast forward to now, uh, in 2021, you know, my bigger challenge now is figuring out how we can incentivize uh, a variety of stakeholders who need to be centered to the discussion and keeping them there at the center of the discussion in a way that's meaningful. And what I mean by that, you know, right now we in the state of Michigan are waiting to have a much more active state broadband office. There's a lot of funding flowing from the infrastructure bill to the state. We need to have our state that's plugged in and aware of what we're going, what's going on alongside our municipalities across the state of Michigan. So uh, I'm also seeing uh, political alignment as being a bigger challenge now, which would then unlock greater resource allocation instead of, you know, at the onset, again, trying to figure out where I stacked up and how to even get a dollar. <laughs> Ah, yes, yes, okay. Um, are people being helpful? And what I mean by that is um, it's, it's easy to say, oh, this office has this responsibility or this person has this responsibility, and I'm done. Right? Do you run into some of that, or are there, is there a sense of all hands on deck in, in Detroit? Uh, definitely all hands on deck. Uh, we, you know, this is an ecosystem of partners. The digital divide is one issue amongst multiple issues uh, and plaguing urban communities, Detroit being no different in, in that regard. And so historically, people in this community have worked to address uh, issues, whether that's from the private sector, the public sector, nonprofit advocacy groups, uh, residents. So this has been an all-hands-on-deck approach at the onset. And again, if you look at my uh, first qu- uh, answer, no, as I'm looking at building momentum when I first started this role, you know, one of the blessings in disguise was not starting with resources because it forced me to build coalition and build community in a way that people could rally behind us even without funding. And so now that we do have funding, we're still keeping that all-hands-on-deck approach because that's, that's what got us here. And so we're honoring that commitment, and we're just emboldening it with additional federal funding. So how would you advise uh, other cities, people you know, in similar situations as you have, um, what would you say is the first two or three things that they really need to do if they're going to create an environment where uh, there is a uh, welcome all hands on deck kind of situation? I think it's 
doing what cities don't like doing, but <laughs> having to do this, making someone a point person, very similar to how the director of visual inclusion, making another point person in their respective city, geography, county, but someone who is going to be, and in one case, the person that's going to be able to brag about everybody in the ecosystem and how great everybody's doing, but in the other case, the single point of failure, meaning if everyone else fails, who is this going to fall on? Who's going to be going to bed every single day and waking up every single day solely thinking about the digital divide for their residents? That is the very first thing by a mile that people need to do. So even if I distance mm -hmm. and I talk about my second and third recommendation, if no one even pays attention to those, the very first thing is they have a point person who is running point and who is a recognized person who is protected and uplifted by a community. Um, if you don't have that, then the other recommendations I'm going to say are probably going to be minimally effective. Uh, mm -hmm. That being said, the second thing beyond having the point person would uh, having having a legitimate brand, something that people can get behind, subscribe to, that is representative of the larger ecosystem and the larger effort. When we say Connect 313, that is a, a collaborative of hundreds of organizations in Detroit. The farming members include Microsoft, the Rocket Community Fund, United Way for Southeast Michigan, and the City of Detroit. We in the City of Detroit are a core partner in that work. We don't own Connect 313. This is a partnership. What a lot of communities, mainly municipalities, try to do, they try to own it as this is the city's digital equity effort. And, yeah, mm -hmm. I might say that shorthand, but at the end of the day, we don't, we're not sole owners of this because the digital divide is too nuanced to own. We know our role in it, and we play it well, but we need other people at the table to be empowered to subscribe to the same brand. That allows us to market better. That allows us to build coalition and build campaigns off of that brand. So the very second thing I would say, after establishing your point person, establish that brand and stick to it. The emergency broadband benefit, we branded it as the emergency broadband benefit or EBB313 campaign, 313 being the area code in Detroit. All of us subscribe to that. Not the city of Detroit campaign, EBB313. So the second point, again, branding. The third point, and this is one where I really get frustrated when others don't do this, you know, don't roll out the red carpet and announce a position and then say, oh, well, we have a coalition or whatever, and then bury that person. I, I don't get it for the life of me. Uh, the, you know, this role requires high visibility. It requires you knowing your residents best and knowing those needs and being able to articulate that fight rooted in data and rooted in knowledge um, about who's doing what. And so the thing that I would strongly suggest uh, municipalities really do to be able to scale this is become friends with your media, <laughs> leverage media to get the word out. It shouldn't be every single time you do, you know, a computer giveaway, that's the only time they hear from you. There needs to be a history and a, almost a pattern of engaging with media, engaging with storytelling opportunities, so that way people can actually see that momentum uh, and be able to ask the question, hey, we might not have bridged the digital divide, but we're making some gains here. And that's something where, I, again, I, I can't stress enough. I think a lot of us try and put our head in the sand in this work and just really get so in the weeds, and it's like, yeah, but at the same time, traditional marketing still helps to drive awareness, and that's a really, really big gap on the digital divide beyond affordability and beyond access, just more so just getting the information that people need. We have to be visible. Mm -hmm. well, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to bring up something. Um, I've been in this business since so 2005. Uh, when I first wrote a book about the community broadband, I talked about, you know, having a uh, – 
fixing the problem orientation or a creative orientation. And the typical you know, bureaucrat looks at, I've got a problem, uh, fix the problem, and don't talk to me anymore about it. It's, it's done. And uh, you may not get the thing fully fixed, but, you know, you got off your plate as opposed to having a uh, creation orientation where you basically say, how can we create something that's never been done before? And let's get everybody involved with this creation as opposed to, oh, here's another problem. Does, what, how, do you, how do you look at that? Um, in both ways, I mean, and both, both are accurate and both are correct to using and bridging the digital divide. I, I use both schools of thought. So in some times, for example, I knew that I had an issue with devices, getting devices to residents in Detroit. I knew that for several reasons. One, you know, devices are, in many cases, computing devices are, are not really affordable. And if they are affordable, sometimes the quality is the, the variable that gets sacrificed. In addition to that, um, if you look at a lot of your urban cores, uh, with the mobility challenges that we have, you're going to find a lot of your tech retail locations in the suburbs. And so for us, I was like, okay, what makes sense to offset that and augment that issue? Well, we brought in Human IT, a national social enterprise that, spe- that um, specializes in refurbishing and redistributing computers to residents and organ- nonprofit organizations. Great. They are now standing up storefronts throughout the city of Detroit. They're now having tech support um, um, becoming much more widely available. Beautiful. And that mindset, I'm like, great. I'm not focusing on all devices and tech support when I literally have an organization that specializes in that. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm not, I mean, I might, you know, visit it and, you know, do some tweaking, but for the most part, that's it. But on the other side of the house, on the creative side, yeah, there is some iterating that we do, and we do uh, have established the Connect 3 on 3 fund, where if you go to our website, connect3.org, you'll see a suggestion portal. That suggestion portal is le- legitimately meant to field suggestions from the community and say, tell us what we don't know. How, mm-hmm. how should we be thinking about X, Y, or Z? And, hey, look, we have an entire fund dedicated to supporting your community projects, your community thoughts, because I don't have all the answers. Now I know where we need to go but there might be a way to get there faster. There might be a way to get there better. Or best of all, when we're there, there might be something else that I'm missing that, that someone else in the community has and they're raising their hand to say, hey, but you think about that. No, but thank you. And so the creative approach is rooted in a yes and methodology for me where anything that we do, yes and. So if someone says, well, what about this internet provider or this or that? Yes and, who else, who else, who else? Um, and not getting seduced by some, you know, amorphous end of the digital divide, just building a better operation that will always be able to respond to every single challenge and facet that locate are correlated with the digital divide. Okay. No, that, that definitely makes sense. That definitely makes sense. Um, this issue I have been really hammering on these last couple of weeks, which is the issue of accountability. Um, we, if you look at the rural areas, um, we've been giving maybe six, seven billion dollar billion dollars every year for six or seven years. Um, that to me is a problem because a lot of the communities have not really advanced, especially when you look at the dollars that have been gone, you know, that we've gone through, right? 
how do urban areas avoid this kind of craziness? Well, I think that urban areas are, in many cases, and I'm not blaming residents here, but I am blaming municipalities. I think a lot of times we're complicit in the lack of funding that is coming in the pipeline to urban communities. If historically we say, well, there hasn't been funding that's been available, so therefore, you know, we're not going to stand up an office. I think that we were historically thinking about that the wrong way, and I'm thankful, again, to the leadership of, of the mayor here in Detroit of saying, like, look, I don't care funding or not. I need a dedicated person focusing on this who can actually shift and change uh, the political landscape. And I'm, I, I obviously realize that, you know, our office benefits a lot from timing here, so I don't necessarily want to make it seem like all municipalities were wrong. But I think the way that we're able to avoid um, uh, some of these challenges with respect to spend and not really seeing the results, I think it's more so us focusing a lot more on the data. You know, a lot of us have in this ecosystem, digital equity ecosystem at least, focused a lot on the American Community Survey. And, you know, we'll acknowledge that the data has its challenges, but I don't really think we've shifted the conversation to empowering and emboldening local communities and local data efforts in a way that's scalable and replicable across several markets. We, there is so much more that we need to learn and know about the digital divide, but we're stuck in outdated <laughs> census-level data. And for us, how we're thinking about this in Detroit, we know how scrutiny works, especially for cities like Detroit where people just can't wait for us to mess up, media is going to blow it up, we're going to story about corrupt this and corrupt that. They do that all the time. And so for us, I know we need to approach this from an uh, overcorrection standpoint. We see the standard, we have to be better than that. And so for us, the accountability factor is really going to be rooted in a better data ecosystem, whereby we look at the federal data, the ACS information, and we say, yeah, that's an interesting baseline, but not in Detroit. We're going to be better than that. And I think that across the board, if most urban cores looked at the federal data sets as being subpar and looking at their data sets that they build to be superior, I think that shifts uh, the, the conversation and the narrative, and it gets rid of the fear of looking at, you know, the investments in rural America and, and thinking that there's going to be some type of parallel in urban. If our data collection is better and we're much more accountable with what we do, I don't think that's going to be a worry, and I actually think that's going to free up a lot more funding because it's going to be able to stave off some of the worries that we're seeing um, from folks who don't believe investments in digital equity yield economic growth. Mm -hmm. How would you describe um, uh, some of the uh, activities? I mean, you, you, you talked about, you know, there's a lot of um, digital awareness kind of uh, programs and so forth. But what does that mean for the, the person maybe not, you know, who isn't in our world? Um, what, what, is this, that, what does that mean for, for, for Detroit, for the average person? Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? Well, how are, you know, we use the phrase digital, uh, you know, equity and so forth, but what exactly does that mean? For, you know, for for for, regular, for every, everyday folks. I mean, people who are not in our yeah, so, world. So I, I I think there's a difference here. Whenever national people talk about this, I don't really pay as much attention. So when they say digital equity or digital whatever, that's fine. <laughs> but locally, when I say that, 
that means something completely different. So nationally, I think that people are saying, oh, well, digital equity, that's a, a rallying call. And I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong for them to say. I'm glad that they're saying it. Locally, when I'm saying digital equity, I'm looking at neighborhoods, people who have historically been missed out of the equation and how they can manifest locally within their community. So, for example, a digital equity play and a digital inclusion play are different in that we wanted to stand up a neighborhood technology hub network in Detroit. And the neighborhood technology hubs are really meant to be in front of people in a way of if their library closed down or you know, they might have had a path to build their library and the library chased them and sent them to collections and so now whatever they do, they never want to go to the library. Okay, we need to meet people where they are. And so the thing that we've uh, been working with is an organization that they're incredible, they're called Brilliant Detroit. Brilliant Detroit is taking rehab properties, older houses, converting them and actually coming to the lab and signing up residents to the emergency broadband benefit as well as uh, providing homework, helping support. They're doing that in these neighborhoods and areas where a lot of people are like, wait, you got one over there? <laughs> You're over there? It's like, yeah. They're showing up in areas where you don't think that they would because they're meeting people who have historically not been a part of this, this conversation, and they're not afraid to do it. And that's where I'm like, all right, that's how you show up. That's how you manifest. And so it's not a surprise to me when we look at our emergency broadband benefit numbers and we see, you know, over 60,000 uh, Detroiters have been enrolled in this program since June 7th when we launched our call center. It doesn't surprise me that we're having success there because we're using digital equity in the realest form of showing up exactly where people are and not necessarily going, you know, downtown, midtown, and trying to, you know, get people to go there. No, we're meeting people where they are in the purest form, and I think that that's the way that we're going to uh, be able to foster our true sense of digital equity outside of it being a cool talking point. Mm-hmm. I got gotcha. you. Huh. Interesting. Um, the, um, the Treasury Department and uh, NTIA, uh, just two of the government agencies that are, that are involved with broadband and so forth, um, funding, they seem to be looking at, uh, instead of having you know, broadband over here and then you have digital e- equity programs over here, they seem to be trying to wrap it all together. Um, for, for example, with the NTIA program, right, they have um, some money that will be sent to um, uh, universities to uh, improve their uh, in- infrastructure. But at the same time, they're, um, they're encouraging there be some sort of um, uh, training uh, programs, some sort of, uh, you know, different parts of the uh, community being involved, not just the, you know, money that goes to the, the school. And so this, this what I consider a holistic approach where you're putting all the elements of um, broadband and anything digital into one program is better than having the sort of the silo approach. Um, is, is that a good, good assessment that this is a good way to go? I mean, sure. Like I said, it's, it's, it's yes and for me. So, I mean, yes, this is a good way to be thinking. But even if this was a quote-unquote siloed approach, locally it doesn't manifest that way. Nationally it might be referred to as such, but look at the, mm-hmm. again, look at the emergency broadband benefits. Or even look at the emergency connectivity fund. 
uh, funding allocated for schools and libraries from the FCC. Now, that is a conversation that's just for them. So that looks like a silo. However, <laughs> as soon as we heard about that emergency connectivity fund, what did we do? Community meeting. Let's get all these stakeholders on the call. I don't care if they're not a school or a library. We need to be pushing this out here. We need to be making sure that if you, even if you're, you have kids who are in some of these charter schools or whatever, we need to be made sure that these charter schools are aware of these, those efforts and those opportunities. And so, again, for us, I think the role of the, the municipality who's going to stand up and say, we want to corral this ecosystem and protect us, every investment that we see is, a, is an investment that is done collaboratively. Uh, you know, I'm thankful for our partners at Wayne State University. Not only do they sit on our Connect Through and Through board, but they're actually going to be running point on all of our federal grant seeking and national grant seeking, you know, outside of the stuff that's specifically earmarked for like municipalities and libraries. And so for us, again, I mean, I think that this is absolutely the way to do it. What NTI is doing, I'd love to see it. I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, and I would also say though, for the municipalities who are already serving in a coordinated capacity that any investment that we see, we would automatically look at it from a collaborative standpoint and try and get as many folks, you know, involved as possible instead of trying to get the grant and then retroactively engage people to, you know, be a team, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned earlier uh, the marketing aspect of things. Do you guys have a um, specific uh, budget for outreach and uh, marketing, you know, traditional marketing activity and so forth? Or where does where does that money come from? Otherwise, it comes from everybody. Like 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 you had said in the beginning, like is this an all hands on deck approach? Yes, it is. And so on on one hand, you know, with Connector and Through, we have our own hotline three one three two four one seven six one eight. That is a number that anyone can call to sign up for the emergency broadband benefit or to get routed to one of our neighbor neighbor technology hubs. That is something that is funded by a number of folks. <laughs> It's surprisingly not the city, though. <laughs> the city, oh, really? We find ourselves – no, 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 no. Yeah, we don't fund that. We don't – again, we haven't historically had funding. So a lot of this money that you're seeing land now or people articulating, we still get to spend it. <laughs> so everything that you're seeing now is really the way that people have been leaning in. A lot of this funding comes from the Rocket Mortgage Classic, you know, a, a stop in the PGA Tour. I, I have to give a huge shout-out to the Rocket Community Fund because mm -hmm. we've been receiving – proceeds from the Rocket Mortgage Classic because Quicken Loans have launched their Changing the Course Initiative on how to bridge the digital divide in Detroit. And so they have their own initiative that then fuels our funding for our Connect 3M3 fund. Out of that fund, we are supporting marketing. We've, we've done a commercial now on the emergency broadband benefit. It's, run, it's, it's, it's running on our local TV stations all throughout. People have definitely made the point to text me if they've seen it. But in addition to just, you know, that immediate philanthropic gift, we also have Comcast, obviously who owns NBC Universal. They're running our emergency broadband benefit ad on all of their on-demand stuff. So anyone who's watching uh, any program in Com with, with Comcast services in Detroit, they're seeing that commercial. And so the, the, the beauty of that is Comcast doesn't say call Comcast 1-800 number. They're saying call 313-241-7618. That is a beautiful thing. And this is what I'm saying. If everyone just did their one brand, and everyone subscribe to that one brand, we then could all be able to pull resources instead of us trying to do, oh, this is United Way's digital divide program. Oh, this is AARP's digital divide program. No, 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 no. This is Connector in three. We are all committed. We're all at the same table, and we all want the digital divide to be successful or to be um, eradicated. And so 
all of our marketing dollars collectively are being pulled from organizations who put who are putting skin in the game and who just care. And like that's the the, the, the secret sauce there. Like people are like, well, how'd you do it? How'd you? It's like no, we built community, and that's it. <laughs> the rest of this stuff we've been running downhill ever since. Mm-hmm. This is. Um, do you think that other cities? are doing the same thing or are they looking to, you know, Detroit as, wow, this is, you know, these guys are doing this really good thing. We need to do what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, some cities, I think, I think there's a mix of them. Some of them think that, you know, they have their own theory of change and, you know, I'm patiently waiting to see whatever lessons that we can glean from that. Uh, You know, we're, we're an ecosystem, the digital equity folks. And I think collectively at the municipal level, there's a mutual respect for the way that people are going. I don't think any one of us have it completely figured out. I wouldn't even say that we're out of the woods yet in Detroit, but I think we're really close to the freeway. Whereas <laughs> 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 other people are just, just, just lost. I'm like, no, 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 I, I can hear the traffic. And every now and then I can, I can catch a headlight. So I'm like, I know we're headed in the right direction. I know we're not lost, lost. It's just one of those things of we haven't figured everything out. We still are bounded by uh, – some semi-restrictive municipal law at the state level. So of the 17 states that have some um, issues around building, uh, specifically come from municipalities, we're one of those. So another state that doesn't have those restrictions, or another city within a state that doesn't have those restrictions, they are ahead of us on the infrastructure front. So they might look at us and say, yeah, yeah all that digital equity stuff is cool, but infrastructure, we've been able to do this, you, you all haven't. And so, I mean, I think that for us, you know, whatever people can learn from us, we want to make sure that they're doing it. But, you know, it's a full disclosure thing that we'll also say, is like, hey, we're not perfect. We don't have everything figured out, but we've definitely been able to orient ourselves successfully. We've been able to see some results that are worth, you know, someone double-clicking on. Mm-hmm. I, uh, well, it's, it's almost, uh, we're almost done. Um, we've got time for one last question. Um, I have been pushing this idea that um, telehealth, is or could be like the main driver for getting people uh, on board with with broadband adoption, primarily because uh, everyone either gets sick or they have responsibility for people who are are sick and so forth. So if you tie telehealth and the delivery of telehealth to the broadband effort, to the digital uh, technology effort and so forth, that can better progress. What's your thought on that? Uh, yes, and I mean, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, full disclosure, I chair the telehealth work group within the FCC's Intergovernmental Advisory Committee. Uh, so I'm mm-hmm. in charge of putting together that telehealth report for, or for next year's FCC telehealth report. And so for me, I innately understand where telehealth stacks and, you know, I'm thankful for our, our healthcare partners uh, in, our, in our local ecosystem. Henry Ford Health System sits on our Connect 3 and 3 board. Um, in addition to that, uh, Priority Health, you, you know, gave a $50,000 uh, gift to Connect 3 and 3 for our work specifically around health equity at the intersection of the digital divide. And so for, for, for me, I'm not necessarily seduced by the, the, the easy way, which is like, you know, broadband for everybody, and then just kind of leaving it at that. It's some, you know, pseudo mic drop. It's like, no, let's actually build something where it goes in uh, an octopus style, where on one hand you're talking about digital divide and telehealth. 
Next thing they're talking about digital divide in workforce, digital divide in learning, digital divide in banking, digital divide in economic development, digital divide in, in place-based activation. However way you want to look at it, we want to be effective in every single one of those because we believe if you're able to move forward on all of them, then if one of them doesn't give, the other one will. <laughs> so if banking gives them a top Great. but healthcare is, then we're going to move there. And so I think that you know a lot of municipalities do themselves a disservice by not having these stances, you don't necessarily have to have a, a city department that is facilitating telehealth. You've got healthcare providers all throughout the country who would love to be able to do that. What we need to be able to do, we need to play first tier. First tier is us actually providing the basic digital tools that's needed. So a stable internet connection. Thanks to the, internet, uh, the emergency broadband benefit, we have that. We just have to facilitate that for our residents. So it's like, okay, check. The next one, de devices. Obviously, local in Detroit, we have a computer operation that is doing that. But again, you know, people need that. Health-enabled devices, we, we, we need to make sure that there's a thing for that. The other part of that is tech support. We have an entity that's doing that, and out of our rescue plan dollars, we look to be beefing up that capacity. Off of that, if a healthcare entity, I don't care if they're in Michigan, wherever, if they want to be able to engage with our residents, they are now healthcare ready or telehealth ready. And I think that that's the thing where we want to be able to establish that baseline and allow us <coughs> allow us to um, innovate off of the baseline that we establish here, that we're taking care of everybody, making sure everyone is fully digitally included. And then beyond that, uh, whatever sector would like to engage with our residents, we prepare them to do so. Great. I am sorry, but we've run out of time. But Joshua, I thank you for your time and your energy, and I hope to have you back again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. All righty. Take care. Thank <laughs> you.